We're going to have to get better internet in our schools. I'm just saying. U.S. government. All right, well, if you're not already there, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We are beginning or continuing our study in what's known as the Catholic epistles or the epistles to the church at large. And so we find ourselves in 1 Peter this morning and we'll be here for a good long while as we walk through these epistles that are super helpful for the church and hope you're encouraged by them. Also, just uh, thank you for those who have been praying for my voice. I've been having some issues with that, so hopefully uh, it holds up today. If not, I'll just sit down. I literally will just sit down. Um... And we'll just move through the service. So, um, but First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Let me pray for us and then we'll jump right in. Father in heaven, uh, your grace is sufficient. Uh, your mercy is uh, abounding. Uh, your love is freely offered to all in Christ. And I pray that all of, all of those things would be uh, heard today through your word. So God, I pray that you would guard my lips and allow nothing to come out of these lips that would, be, uh, that would not glorify you and honor your name, um, that you would give us all ears to hear and minds to understand what it is that you have to show us from your holy word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been to college, you, you will know that during your first semester or first year, you are taking beginner classes. And these beginner classes are commonly referred to as 101 classes. So you have History 101 or Biology 101 or French 101, whatever it is that you're getting involved in at school. And these classes are meant to to introduce you to the subjects and topics in in order to prepare you for what is to come in your years of college. Well, the letter that we're diving into today is just that for us. It's Christianity 101. And if I were teaching a class on Christianity, uh, 1 Peter would be a required text for everyone to read. Because as one commentator points out about this wonderful letter, is 1 Peter in only 105 verses covers a wide field of Christian theology and ethics Here is the great doctrine of redemption. Here are repeated calls to holiness and humble trust in God for each day's needs. Here is practical counsel for marriage, for work, for relating to government, for witnessing to unbelievers, for using spiritual gifts, for serving as an elder in the church. Here is profound comfort and sorrow and insight as far as God allows into the deep mysteries of suffering and reprobation. Here is the majestic beauty of the church as a spiritual temple in which we daily offer spiritual sacrifices pleasing to God. And here is Jesus, the chief shepherd who cares for us, the example who leads us, the chosen cornerstone who establishes us and unites us in the Savior who bore our sins in His body on the cross, the one whom, not having seen, we love. And all of this is contained in a letter that takes just under 15 minutes to read. Some have called it the most condensed New Testament resume of the Christian faith and of the conduct that it inspires. Martin Luther described 1 Peter as one of the noblest books in the New Testament. He also believed that 1 Peter contained all that is necessary 
for a Christian to know. Now that's a profound statement. So much so that maybe an immediate application or a direct application for you, even this afternoon or starting tomorrow, is to read through 1 Peter as we walk through this book each Sunday. So there are five chapters, so I would suggest read a chapter a day, Monday through Friday, and then you have Saturday and Sunday, you can do whatever you want. So you read, read a chapter a day, and by the time we're finished with our study of 1 Peter on Sunday, you will have read 1 Peter about 14 or 15 times. Because what we really have here in 1 Peter is not just Christianity 101. It is that. But we have a master class in what it means to be a Christian. Peter's showing us that Christianity is not a once a week meeting like we're doing right now. That Christianity is not only real and relevant on Christmas and Easter, but that Christianity is all of life. Peter wants you and I to know that there is not an ounce of your life that is to go untouched by what Christ has done and is doing in you right now. So this morning I want to break these two verses up in three ways because I believe they give us a perfect intro into this great letter. So first, and this should be in your worship, uh, on your uh, handout, if you're taking notes. First is a commissioned pastor... So we'll learn about our author here. Second point is a chosen people. So we'll learn about our audience who Peter is writing to directly. And then third is a constant God. And so we'll learn about the ultimate purpose of the letter. So just to to forewarn you, the first and second point will be the longest. uh, And that third point will be pretty short. But just to give you a good overview of what we're getting ourselves into with 1 Peter. So first, a commissioned pastor. In verse 1, we find out immediately who the author of this letter is. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now this is the only thing that Peter tells his readers about himself, which is, if you know anything about Peter, is a big change from where Peter came from, if you know about the Gospels at all, and the story that is written there for us. But even if you have some basic knowledge of at least the Gospels, you'll know that Peter, while bold, could be a bit brash at times. And, and he could get ahead of himself and everyone, everyone else that was in his sphere, including Jesus himself. For instance, in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Peter is the only one that responds with the correct answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. To which Jesus responds, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Meaning, God is at work in you, Peter. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And then, What seems like moments later, Jesus is rebuking Peter and referring to him as Satan because Peter tries to interfere with the plans of God. Get behind me, Satan, Jesus says to Peter. And then probably his most regrettable moment of his entire life was denying that he even knew Jesus. And not just once, but he does it three times, denies him. 
And it comes at a time when Jesus needed him the most. So Peter is a man who has walked through failure, he's walked through disgrace, and he's walked through shame, but he's also a man who has walked through forgiveness, mercy, and grace. Offered to him by none other than the one he denied. This is why I had John 21 read for us this morning, because it paints this very beautiful picture of of Peter not only being restored by Jesus, but also commissioned by Jesus. And this story that, that, that Scott read for us takes place after the resurrection, and Jesus is revealing himself to his disciples. And I want you to notice that one of the first, if you want to even turn there to John 21, just flip back to your left, the last chapter of, of, of John 21, right before Acts. But I want you to notice that despite of his failure, his great failure, and his shame, Peter still rushes to get to Jesus. As soon as the disciple whom Jesus loves says to him, this is the Lord, Peter jumps out of the boat and swims a hundred plus yards to get to him. Now this says more about Jesus than it does about Peter. Because Peter knew something about Jesus that did not make him row his boat out deeper away from Jesus to say, I I, I am unworthy. I cannot be close to this guy anymore. But rather to draw closer to him. To get to him as quickly as possible. He, He wanted to be faster than even the boat. Even if he looked like a fool doing so. But then we get this interaction between Jesus and Peter in verses 15 through 19. And I want you to first notice there in that interaction that Jesus never calls Peter, Peter, in these verses. He calls him Simon, which is his given name, the the name given to him at birth. And he does this as if to say to Peter, you are forgiven. You are forgiven, and we are starting fresh here. And then Jesus proceeds three times, just as many times as Peter denied him, to reinstate Peter in front of all of the disciples. And in these three statements, Jesus uh, commissions Peter to do one thing. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep, Peter. Feed my sheep. And out of his love for Jesus, Peter's love for Jesus, and Jesus' love for him, that is exactly what Peter does. We see that in the book of Acts, when you, when you jump into the book of Acts, that Peter immediately begins to be a preacher and proclaiming the truths of the gospel. Knowing even, because it's the third thing that Jesus tells him, is that he's going to die a martyr's death. Knowing even that he is going to die, he proclaims the truth, reality, and relevancy of Jesus Christ. And so throughout the letter, Peter purposefully uses this shepherding language in 1 Peter. In chapter 2, verse 25, he says uh, to his audience, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And then in chapter 5, referring to the elders of the church, the pastors of the church, he tells them, Shepherd the flock, the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd the sheep. Care for the sheep. So Peter sets the tone for what this looks like as he shepherds his readers 
through his writings as their pastor. Now notice again in these first words in our text that Peter says very little about himself. But what he does say about himself, he grounds in his identity in Christ. Because Peter, Peter, is, Peter is who he is because he too has been shepherded by the true shepherd, Jesus, and he knows that well. He knows what that shepherding is like. Which is why he takes these verses, this, these beginning sentences in, in, uh, in his letter to remind his readers, first and foremost of who they are in Christ. That they are a chosen people. And that being a chosen people is their identity, which is our second point. And understanding this is important for, for, Christian, for all Christians at all times and in all places to grasp as well. Your identity as a Christian, as your identity that is found in Christ. So who do you think you are, or who do you know yourself to be? Is it the identity that you've created for yourself on social media? Just pause there for a moment. Is it your job? Is it being a husband, or being a wife? Is it being a mom or a dad? Is that where you find your identity? Do you find your identity in what sport or hobby you participate in? Or maybe you find it, if you're a student, you find it in making good grades and having the right friends. And that's where your identity comes from. In his book, Dangerous Calling, Paul Tripp says, whom I met a couple of weeks ago on the streets of Philadelphia, side note, great guy. He says this, human beings are always assigning to themselves some kind of identity. There are only two places to look. Either you will be getting your identity vertically from who you are in Christ, or you will be shopping for it horizontally in the situations, experiences, and relationships of daily life. And I would just add that those shopping experiences change daily, if not moment by moment. But not so when you are finding your identity in the one who never changes. When you find your identity in Christ. Hunter mentioned last week John Calvin's words from his institutes concerning knowing yourself. And he says this, John Calvin, not Hunter. He says, Wisdom that is to be called true and assured broadly consists of two parts. Knowledge of God and knowledge of, your, of ourselves. We cannot sincerely yearn for God until we have first begun to cease being pleased with ourselves. And we could kind of flip that a little bit, that we, can sincerely, we cannot sincerely yearn for God if we have first begun not to cease making everything else but Jesus our identity. So when Peter in verses 1 and 2 reminds the church of their vertical identity here. Why? Because suffering is coming for the church. If, if They're already kind of involved in it. But suffering is coming. Just like suffering is coming for you. If you're not, uh, we're always just coming out of suffering or we're in suffering or we're about to be in suffering. It is always, that's always where, where we're at at some point in our life. So suffering will come. 
because he, he reminds the church of their vertical identity because in order to live in a post-Christian culture that is hostile towards Christians and hostile towards Christianity and the ideas and the beliefs of Christianity, one needs to first know who they are in Christ. Because if you approach suffering and persecution and hostility through a horizontal identity that changes from day to day, that changes moment by moment, you'll never flourish as as a Christian. We'll never flourish as a church if we seek to find our identity in anything but Jesus. And Peter does this throughout the letter. Later in chapter 2, you'll hear the familiar words in verses 9 and 10 when he says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous or wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Peter, from the jump of his letter, reminds them of who they are. And the first way he does this is to speak of them as the elect. Now I know that's a scary word for some of us, but that's Peter's word that he's using there. And, and to speak of his readers as elect means that they have been chosen by God. Now this is significant because Peter's readers primarily, who he's writing to here, were Gentiles, not Jews. And the only other time the term elect is used is when it is speaking of the Jews in the Old Testament. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Sounds familiar. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Biblical pattern. Choosing and electing. So Peter, from the outset, is equating the church of Jesus Christ with the Israel of God. So we'll say it again in chapter 2, verse 9 that I just read, where the church is called a chosen people. They are the true people of God. So first, they're, ex, or they're, they're, they're the elect. The second thing Peter communicates about their identity is that they are the exiles of the dispersion. Now, what does that mean? Well, they are a people that have been scattered about. We know, we know that, that, that Christians have been scattered. Looking back to Acts, chapter, chapter in the, you know, the early chapters of Acts with Paul. But what Peter is doing here mainly is is he's drawing an analogy again between the the Jewish diaspora or the Jewish dispersion and the situation of his readers. So he's drawing this connection between the two. So again, he's implying that they should understand themselves as Christians in terms of God's people of the Old Covenant or the Old Testament who were also foreigners in the lands to which they had been scattered. The way Paul explains it in Romans 11 makes it a lot clearer where he talks about the Gentiles being grafted into the olive tree. Essentially saying that they are being grafted into the same covenantal promises that were given to Abraham with the Jews. Hebrews 11.13 again 
making this connection, says that all the heroes of the faith from Abel to Abraham acknowledged that they were aliens, exiles, and sojourners on the earth. So what Peter is doing here with his language is he is placing the Gentile Christians within the line of promise. And if you remember from my study of of Genesis, the line of promise that was given to Abraham is not just for the Jews, but for all. And this is what Peter is telling his readers. Essentially saying that they are not just exiles in the earthly sense of the word, but in the spiritual sense of the word as well. That their true home is heaven, and any earthly dwelling is only temporary. Now, what this does not mean is that we sort of endure this evil world because we're only passing through it and it doesn't matter and we just need to hold on tight until we die or Jesus comes, comes back and gets us. This is not what Peter is calling them to do. Peter is not calling these Christians to withdraw from the culture or withdraw from the world, but instead will show them what it means throughout his letter to live faithfully as believers within the culture, within the world. And it sounds a lot like what Jesus prays to his father concerning his followers in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, if you remember that. Jesus prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I, concentrate, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Because what Peter is also communicating by calling them exiles is what the relationship is between the Christian and the unbelieving world. Meaning that the way we live our lives as exiles, because if you are a Christian, you are now considered an exile in this world. The way we live our lives as exiles should be different than the one who is not living their life as an exile. We know this just when we have refugees who come to our country. They are living differently. We, used to, we lived close to Clarkston, Georgia which is, has the highest amount of refugees, I think, in the, in, the, in the country. And people are living very different lives than Americans in that part of Atlanta. You could see their foreignness. As one commentator said, the effects of this foreignness can or should be felt by you and by others. And I'm not saying that you can't grab enjoyment from this world and receive it and and enjoy life and and go on vacations and do all those sorts of things, but you should feel your foreignness. You should feel that you are not made for this world, but you were made for another. So I'll ask the question, a good question to to ask and to ask yourself here is, to, to, to you Christian, is can people tell a difference? Do they notice your foreignness? Do they notice that you are are not of this world? That you are an alien? But that you are made for another? Does your life reflect that? 
The next thing Peter tells them concerning their identity is that their election has happened according to the foreknowledge of God. So this is one of the great debates, theological debates, that happens around this topic of foreknowledge. And it's that some will throw out election by saying, well, of course God foreknew. We believe that happens. We, knew, we know that he knows what is going to happen ahead of time. So, of course God foreknew those who would choose him, but that God did not choose those who would come to know him. Theological debate right there. Not going to dive into that, really. But it's helpful to know here that the word foreknowledge actually modifies the word election in the Greek. So again, what Peter is doing, what his ultimate goal here is, is pointing his readers back to their heritage. Because the word know in Hebrew often refers to God's covenantal love that he has always had for his people, Jews and Gentiles. For example, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Familiar verse, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And a lot of times in our, in our Bibles, this word know is, is and can be translated as the word chosen. So, instead of saying, God didn't elect but foreknew, uh, we can understand it in this way, that, that these Gentile Christians who are God's chosen people because he has known them from all eternity. That's why they are his chosen people, because he has foreknown them. Because to only say that God knew ahead of time that something was going to happen, or that his people were going to do this or that or the other, does not communicate love to his people. You see, he has not merely, uh, he has not merely known something they were going to do, but he has set his love on them before the foundations of the world. And we know this to be true because later in the chapter, Peter says the same thing concerning Jesus in chapter 1, verse 20. He says, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So Peter is not merely saying God knew when Christ would come. He is also saying that God foreordained, that God chose when Christ would come. At the proper time, the Bible says. And God's love is set on Jesus as well. That those who are foreknown by God are foreknown in and with Christ. So the next identifying mark Peter points to is the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And this, this is also a word that is modifying the word election. So it's, it's just describing what he, he means when he talks about election here. So because of this, we see that Peter is not simply saying God foreknew the elect, but that he also tells him that God will act to make the elect his own. And this is a theme that Peter latches onto into his letter, especially as he calls his readers in verse 15 of chapter 1, as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Be holy. Be holy in your lives. Be holy in everything that you do. And sanctification reminds us that this is ongoing. 
that it doesn't stop the minute that you, that, you, uh, that you profess that Jesus is Lord and that you repent of your sins and turn to Him and believe, but that it, that is an ongoing process. Because in a way, as long as we are on this earth, we can never really move on from our sin. And you know this to be true. It's a constant battle between our old identity and our new identity. We're, we're reminded of it from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep. The, the only thing is, is we've done a really good job in our culture and in churches and in our own lives of covering up sin and then justifying it away. I think the Apostle Paul expresses it best in Romans 7. I mean, the Apostle Paul, of all people, but behind Jesus, the most important person in the Scriptures, some would say. But Paul, too, wrestled with his own sin. He says in Romans 7, verse 15, For I do not understand my own actions. Have you ever said that? For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Paul? And then in verse 19, For I do not do, not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. I mean, the sheer fact that we wear clothes is a reminder to our sinful condition. A reminder of what took place at the fall and what God had to do in His grace toward us. And because of this, because of our sinful condition, this, this, we, we are constantly having to cast ourselves at the feet of Jesus every single day, moment by moment. No moment knowing that He alone saves us from sin's curse and saves us from its crushing weight of guilt and damnation. And this is why it's important that Peter's readers know this nuance concerning their salvation. That God doesn't elect you and then leave you. Because the Spirit has been given to you, Christian, that means God is always with you. So it is through the work of God foreknowing and the Spirit's work of sanctification that introduces His readers, us, to the new covenant reality that is only found in Christ Jesus. And because because believers enter this covenant, as Peter tells us here, by obeying the gospel or obeying Jesus and through the sprinkled blood of Jesus, His cleansing sacrifice. That is the only way that happens. And within this new covenant reality, we are reminded again and again and again of how constant, how reliable our God is. And it's this that Peter wants his first century readers and his 21st century readers to understand. Remember, this is a letter yeah, written here to these, these cities that were named, but it's also a letter that is written to Christians in Augusta, Georgia as well. And this is why these final words of verse 2 should not be treated as throwaway words. It's just kind of this greeting and then we kind of move on to the, to the good stuff. May grace and peace be multiplied to you, Peter says. Because the message that Peter is proclaiming throughout this letter is one of grace. In chapter 5, verse 12, 
Peter tells us clearly, this is the purpose of my letter. This is the purpose of my letter. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. So I wrote this letter to say, this is the true grace of God. Everything that I've just written here, this is the true grace of God. And then he says, stand firm in it. Stand firm in His grace. Are you standing firm in God's grace today? Is that where you're at today? Is that where you're standing today? Because when you are, that is when you are experiencing God's peace. Which is true peace that can only be found in Christ. Because it's only in Christ where you are set in a right relationship with God. If you are apart from God at this moment in your life, the Bible says that you are His enemy. That His wrath stands against you currently. But Jesus is the one who took on that wrath for us. And He is the one, the only one, who can bring peace in that relationship. So my prayer is the same as Peter's here. That through this study of his great letter, that God's grace and God's peace would be multiplied to each one of us greatly as well. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray right now that your grace and your peace that is only found in Christ would be multiplied to us greatly now and forevermore. That we would understand your, your, um, the, your love that you have set upon us before the foundations of the world. And that that love, like Peter, like it did to Peter, that it would change us, that it would, uh, that it would um, change our lives in, in such a way that we, that we live in this world uh, as foreigners, that we, that we would live in this world with the mindset of that this world is not our final home, but that we were made for another. And I pray that that would be our posture here at this church always. And we pray all of these things in the mighty name of Christ. Amen.